Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 89. I'm Amanda Earl, and I'm here with Kyle Flemmer of The Blasted Tree. Hi, Kyle. Hello. Hi. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, Kyle and I have already been talking for a few minutes, as I do when I start the show, and we've already had all the good conversations. So, you know, I'm sorry, audience, you'll be missing out. No, no, we're we're still going to have a lovely conversation about the Blasted Tree. I will also have show notes, and I'll include the theblastedtree.com in the the links, and also your band camp as well, which is something I didn't discover until I, I went to look in when I started to research and go to your site. So that was quite a quite a thrill. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on at the Blasted Tree that I hadn't even realized. I already liked the interesting stuff going on before I knew that there was more interesting stuff going on on the site as well. So let's, that's one of the big things we're going to talk about. But the first thing I'd like to ask, because I've been asking this instead of reading people's bios, I've been asking them, asking our guests, what would you like listeners to know about you? Ooh. I think this is a great way to start um, rather than just rattling off the bio that uh, you get in the back of the magazine, right? Um, I guess I would like listeners to know, first of all, that I'm living in uh, Treaty 7 territory in uh, Wilkinsis, colonially known as Calgary. Um, I was born and raised here, but I've lived in Montreal and elsewhere. Um, I actually started the Blasted Tree in Montreal when I was an undergrad there at Concordia University, and then sort of transplanted it back here after, uh, after I graduated. Um, I make visual poetry and I guess more traditional text-based poetry. And uh, this led me to doing some small press publishing and editing and you know the, the million hats that, that we small press people uh, end up wearing over time. And uh, yeah, I sort of just, I love the whole snowballing aspect of, of the, uh, the small press scene. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking it over with you. We, thanks, that, that uh, we first, uh, you and I actually met in person for the first time at Meet the Presses, which I don't know, it could have been 2018. When, when did you come to, was it 2018, 2017? No, I'm not certain. I mean, I could look. <laughs> I don't know. Something, yeah. I have, I have a, a publication uh, that you gave me from Franco Cortese from that, from 2018. So I'm sort of guessing it's either 2018 or 2019, but we were right across. You were beside Sasha Archer's Simulacrum Press and I was across. Right with Nina Jane uh, Dristick and, and a few other people. And, and it was nice, it was a good uh, match of, of uh, I, I remember it was quite a, quite a fun time just to, that was, that was the last outside, um, well, almost outside event I've attended since, you know, like it's been a long time since I've been no out. But, uh, yeah, and Rob was just down the way. We had quite a nice yeah. little aisle uh, going on. It was a lot of fun. Kirby was around the corner. It's it was, uh, it was around the corner. Yeah, wasn't far away. We, we it was a really wonderful. That was a lot of fun. I remember those events with such fondness. And one of the things, of course, 
at the event was the Blasted Tree, one of the small press publishers. And you had, at that point, you had a variety of uh, different uh, publications on your table. I remember being really impressed with them all. And uh, so can you, what would you like listeners to know about the Blasted Tree? Well, the Blasted Tree focuses on um, poetry and visual poetry primarily, but I'm really interested in experimental forms of any kind, really. Uh, so this has led me to publish short stories, um, photography even, uh, video poems, spoken word poetry, nonfiction stuff, uh, book reviews even, uh, film reviews. So kind of go all over the map, but uh, I sort of straddle the line between print and online. And I, I really love uh, materials and design and uh, bringing things into the world physically. But I, I'm also really interested in circulating stuff online where it can always be accessed and, and uh, shared as widely as possible. And, and we can do different things uh, online than we can in, in print, obviously, with, with spoken word and stuff. So um, the Blasted Tree is really about trying, trying whatever on for size, you know, trying try whatever we can try. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been so much fun. So much fun. That's great. And what what did you start? Was it 2014 that you started? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from yeah, that's right. So that's like um, it's it's almost it's pretty much eight years ago now. Is that right? Am I doing my math right? I don't know. Seven. Yes, so yes. 14. It'll be eight years this summer. <laughs> All right. Well, that's 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 nice. Uh, do you have any plans for for? Uh, I mean, it's hard at this time, but will you do something to celebrate? The eighth year. The eighth year. You know, we did a we did sort of a larger gathering at the five year, um, and I think I'll probably repeat something like that. Maybe go a even bigger for the ten year. But uh, I hadn't really thought of it. COVID has really thrown a wrench in the, no. uh, in the event planning sort of uh, scheme of things. But I, I love doing things online because we do so much visual poetry. It makes a a great way to to share that kind of stuff, um, which is difficult to do in person. Uh, so maybe we'll do a we'll do a visual poetry uh, event of some sort uh, to celebrate <laughs> the eight year. That would be cool. Well, you know, you could have people do weird, interesting things with the number eight and the thought of eight, right? That would be could be called crazy eight. I don't know. Just, just I know, just spitballing here as we do, as one does. Uh, the other thing I was going to say to you before I ask the other question on my sheet here <laughs> is. Um, uh, when was the first time you saw, say, a chapbook or another ephemeral little publication that you fell in love with the form, or I assume you fell in love with the form? Yes, that would be just right before I started The Blasted Tree. Um, I was getting some printing done for school across the road at the, at the print shop, and they had this little display rack of um, stuff that they had produced. And some of the things in there were chapbooks um, done by Metatron Press, at the mm -hmm. very, very beginning of Metatron, their very first season of stuff. And I'm looking at it like, oh, this is beautiful. This is, this is so much fun. It's, you know, people that I'm familiar with from, from school and I want to do something similar, right? So a couple months later, I, I had lost a tree going and, and uh, well, we were making chapbooks. The first chapbook that I ever saw that I, I mean, I only started to see chapbooks in 2001 or so because I, I was taking a creative writing workshop at Ottawa U and uh, had heard about the small press fair and uh, 
Charles and I took uh, the publications from Seymour Maine's creative writing group uh, called, um, oh, why I've suddenly lost the name of it. I just, I have a public, I have a chapbook published by Friday Circle. <laughs> and uh, we sold them at the fair and we hadn't even seen chapbooks before either one of us. I never even heard of the term and we were in love, but um, there was uh, Jay Miller from uh, Book Hug and Jay had his chapbook, The Small Blue, which is reversible. Like it's the other side too. So it's, it's like you turn it upside down and, it's in the, and it's, it was beautiful. And I was like, so I was in love with this. Like just the idea that you could do all kinds of things in this form. Like it was so, yeah. And, and, and the fact that anyone could do it, like that was, that was nice. I always thought until really that time, I didn't realize that, um, um, you know, people were making their own thing, own right, were publishing their own writing, their own art. And I don't know, I was just not in that world at that point. So yeah, that was an exciting, that was an exciting revelation. And of course, we immediately wanted to make them like that was it, like we wanted to start making them. So what about the, the name, The Blasted Tree? Where did that come from? And what's oh, well, the, the image of the blasted tree sort of represents to me, like the one uh, the, the tallest tree in the forest that you know, has been struck by lightning because it stands just a little bit above the rest, or maybe it's not the tallest, but it's standing in a field away from the rest. It kind of is a bit of a target, but uh, it also sort of connects with the idea of, of like the romantic image of, of the lightning struck tree or, or even like Captain Ahab was struck by lightning a bunch of times and it makes, it's kind of like a, a curse, but it, it's also almost a superpower. Um, and it, uh, it just sort of resonated with me at the time as, as something that would symbolize like standing out from the crowd. And uh, I thought that would be a good image for, um, small press poetry, which is, is so, yeah. uh, niche and anonymous. There's a little bit of irony in there, but, um, but yeah, yeah, that's kind of where it comes from. You know, like uh, lightning bringing bringing Frankenstein to life. That's yeah, kind of the, that's kind of the idea. Bringing the creature to life. That's it. And now I'm thinking about this. Um, not that I'm a big Marvel comics person or comic books person, but I'm thinking about about the whole idea of the lightning transforming you into a superhero of small oh. press poetry. There you go. So. <laughs> This is, or we can, or, or maybe we're all just mutants and we're, you know, we've got the superpowers and, uh, but we stand out because, you know, we're not, we're still kind of the geeky types, right? So, which is good, but uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. My brain, it must be the nettle tea. I don't know. It's, it's doing stuff there. It's, uh, so, yeah, I mean, thinking about the blaster tree and all the things you've done, I guess I have a big question and you can answer it in any way that you like and, and even make it more specific. I have written down here, how can a small press contribute to social change? Which is a huge question. I love how ambitious I am when I write these questions, but you never know where they're gonna go. So I, I, I include that. How can a small press or how can your small press or any small press, how can Canadian small presses, whatever way you wanna take the question. Um, well, I've, actually, I've been thinking about this question since you, since you um, fielded it the other day. And uh, you're right, it's a huge question. There's so many layers there. Um, and I mean, the, the, the question even before that is can small press contribute to small change or to yeah. social change? And I, like, I think it does, which is you know, part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. But the, the answer that I came to after thinking about this was 
in the same way that anything else good contributes to social change, which is um, incrementally, like on an everyday, uh, everyday creeping forward way. Like a good thing doesn't really change the world overnight. Like only bad things seem to change the world overnight. Good things like add up. Like you, you do a kind thing today, you do a generous or thoughtful thing the next day and a respectful thing the day after that. And you become known as a nice person just over time. And that makes the world a better place. That is, that's social change. And so for, for me, small press is that. It's these small acts of recognition and, and mutual support and enthusiasm that, that reinforce this community. And it has this outward rippling effect where our families and our friends and are enriched by these creative gestures and the world is made better by it. Yeah, that's, that seems reasonable. And I think too, like, I, I mean, I have this note of praise later on that I'll read about the blaster tree, which just, I guess what I was prefacing with this is, I think you're doing a lot of good in, in creating welcoming spaces, which is uh, important. So, uh, so yeah, I think you contribute and we'll get to some other things, that, uh, reasons why I brought it up as well. So we talked a little bit about this already. You've got some digital content on the Blasted Tree site, audio, film, video, poems, and photography. And you yourself, at least at the time of some bio, I don't know if it's still the case, you were working on a, an MA in digital studies. Is that is that still the That's case? That's right. I'm, I'm right at the end here. I'm actually, just before <laughs> this interview, I'm working on like the conclusion of my, my thesis to try and uh, wrap up my, my first draft. <laughs> Great. Well, I will just distract you for, for an hour or so, and then you can get back to it. But uh, that's interesting. Um, I've always been a bit frustrated at the way some people seem to insist that being published in print is somehow better than being published online. Actually, it's a serious uh, annoyance of mine. I think there are a lot of great advantages to digital publishing. There's a lot of both. But um, why is it important for the Blasted Tree to include digital content? And can you discuss your interest in providing digital content for the press? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I 100% agree with you that there's like the tension between print and online is so, it's so phony and, and yeah. it really diminishes one over the other. And it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, they do do very different things though. And yeah. uh, I, I like, you know, I'll make a limited edition of 50 chapbooks and I'll put a lot of time and effort into the materials, but there's only 50 of them. So at most, only around that many people can can experience the work, but so much of the work that I get to, to um, be involved with uh, deserves a wider circulation. It deserves um, sort of the, the longevity that that um, exhibition on the website can provide for it. And so for me, the digital, the digital, uh, the website is primarily about access. It's about, um, you know, making sure that if the, the cost of shipping um, is you know, cost prohibitive for, for, for someone to buy a chapbook. They don't have to do that. They can, they can look at their friend's poetry online and appreciate it. And, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's primarily why. But then, you know, of course I found um, with the, the, the audio and film video, that kind of stuff, that there yeah. are so many opportunities on um, the online format that uh, I didn't even really have at all uh, in mind when I started the website, like this, the section that says digital, the drop down, and everything over like that. Lot. That's yeah. the last thing I added. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there, and yeah, the thing is, of course, with websites, it it is getting. Um, it's getting um, easier and less expensive for people to develop them as well. Like it used to be, it was still, 
even that was prohibitive for the creator, right? I mean, because you have to, you had to know, I still remember trying to use Dreamweaver for God's sake, and that was a frightening experience, but that was like, that was a long time ago. So, um, I mean, I, for, for everything we do for Angel House Press and Bywords, I'm lucky Charles uh, runs, uh, he's able to design and, and do stuff for the sites, but um, he makes them so now so that I can just upload stuff without, you know, without having him have to be involved for every single step of it. So that's good. We use like WordPress and stuff, which is still very buggy and awful, but uh, it sort of does the job in a, in a clunky sort of a way. But yeah, I think it's, and I've noticed that a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, say literary journals, for instance, and also publishers have a lot of content online as well. So I think there's a real interest in having that um, available, whatever form it's in. So yeah, I, I like it. I like. I I have to say, I, I, until I started to read uh, in preparation for the, our talk today, I which is a few weeks ago, I hadn't really gone onto your site as thoroughly as, and I was really surprised and pleased with how much is there. I mean, I I always. I, I do tend to primarily think of a press as uh, print work unless otherwise sort of prompted to go in, in that direction. So, but a lot of, a lot of small presses have, I mean, uh, Knife Fork Book has some beautiful content online. Gap Riot Press certainly does. Like there's a lot of good, and Rob McLennan does a ton of stuff online related to his, his uh, above ground press and otherwise and showed your books still too. Yeah, yeah so we, we have a lot of good models out there. So, uh, yeah, one of the things uh, that the um, digital content contains is um, Verbal Volume 1, a spoken word audio anthology, which is available through Bandcamp. And I, I put the uh, Bandcamp link up there as well. So you, you collected eight spoken word poems from across Canada. What was that process? What, how did you? Well, I guess it started with um, attending lots of live events. Uh, I, I guess got my my first introduction to poetry out in the world as opposed to poetry at school, um, at live events, you know, open mics and spoken word stuff. And I, I made a bunch of friends in that community and they were not, not really interested in publishing in print. You know, yeah. like I just send me a poem, I'll make a leaflet or, or whatever. And you know, that's not really the kind of thing that I do. And I realized, oh, if well, if I wanna involve these people because I love their stuff, uh, I have to meet them where they are. And so I had sent out a call for submissions and I, I solicited some, some of the spoken word tracks that are, that are included in that volume uh, from friends. But I got such a wide assortment of stuff um, in a mixture of like recording qualities with some set to music, some, you know, recorded on, on like a webcam. And like the, it, it gives, to, to listening, gives such like a tangible, feeling of the the poetry community which is so wide right so different yeah and and yeah you can hear it in people's voices and in their approach to the to the spoken word format yeah, yeah so I mean, yeah once once bringing them in i just sort of made the levels approximately the same so one track's not really loud <laughs> and the other is you know pretty quiet and uh stuck them up on Bandcamp. we released one one uh, oh no, that's a different series. I was going to say we released one at a time, but uh, I think we put the whole put the whole thing out at once. Uh, again, a lot of fun. I really enjoy working with the spoken word format. Well, that's good. I mean, it, it's nice to see um, that writing. Um, Arc Poetry Magazine has a spoken word component. Festivals like Verse Fest have always included spoken word. There have been others that have been less interested in in 
in uh, in that combination. I, I don't know. It's it's. I think uh, I, we haven't had live events here much in such a long time. I can't remember what it's like to. Uh, I mean, I was I was went to Verse Fest this past November during the lull between Omicron and whatever the current situation is, and that was so nice just to hear and just to talk to people. And we went out to the pub after Kirby read, and they were fantastic. You know, like it was just such a nice thing. And yeah, we went out and had had a little uh, libation at the pub afterwards, which is again I haven't really been doing at all. So. Yeah, this is a rare treat these days. It was refreshing just to be around people in person again and just to hear a person uh, read or, or, or speak their own poetry is just something like you. You always get more insight, I think, into the work when it's in the voice of the poet. So I think it's and I listened to a few on the on the um, on the on the from the um, from verbal and I liked it, but it says volume one. So does that mean that there's a volume two or other volumes coming? Do you think, or is it? I certainly have opened myself up to that question by calling <laughs> it volume one. Um, I would definitely do another one of these. I don't have I don't have one in the works, but I would absolutely um, do another another volume of uh, of this. Uh, this uh, verbal, so maybe I should, uh, maybe this will encourage me to put the call out for another round of stuff, so. That's right. Every time I hear verbal, I always think of uh, um, the, the usual suspects, you know, that, that uh, movie. Oh, yeah. Movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's verbal. But um, yeah, so um, also another item in there is uh, in the digital content section is, is a really great uh, six-part interview series called Feminist Perspectives. And in her foreword, B. Keeler writes about the difficulties of the definition, which is of, of feminism, of gender and more. And contributors share memories and poetry and other things. What prompted the series, and will there be more of these? Because the, I thought it was a really great. Um, I had I was really surprised to see that. Actually, I hadn't seen that. So well, that's. Um, I guess I'll start with the second part first. The same same situation. I don't have current like the the call isn't out for another series along these lines, but I'm absolutely open to doing another uh, series. This came about through. A lot of conversations with B. Keeler, um, uh, like over beers after school, right. talking about you know the stuff we had been talking about in class, and she was a really big influence in in my like budding sense of what feminism is and its role in my life. And we butt heads a lot, and she like really you know helped put me on the path. And so I'm like, I want to talk about this with more people, and maybe we can we can publish it. Maybe we can. You know put it out in the world and uh because you know i'm i was just a baby in terms of my feminist praxis yeah like, b i need you to be my i need you to edit this for me and so we brought in we brought in a collection of stuff together and she edited it and wrote a forward and we put uh put it together and i found i found this series to be a kind of a turning point um for the press and i knew that um I knew that even without B as as like a contributing editor, that I wanted to um, take some of the philosophy and approach uh, that that we had brought to this series and apply that, you know, just across the board. Yeah, it was a good series, and yeah, it would be nice if you did it again. I I I, I used to for years. I, I said I wasn't a feminist, and uh, 
I finally stopped being an idiot, but, but um, I had some, some good guides uh, along the way. Um, women who uh, especially were understanding when I said such a silly thing and didn't like, you know, strangely didn't react angrily about that silly statement. But one of the people who I think was a good guide for me was Claire Farley of Cantheus, because we used to talk about that. In fact, I remember when, when she first um, at, like talk to me about Cantheus and I said well I don't I don't publish work in women's only things <laughs> well I came a long way I ended up being an editor of a, a women only publication so an anthology so I've come a long way in my thinking but you can I mean once you start to open up you can and you've, if you have good people around you who who will kind of guide you without sort of um, maybe yelling at you as they should you know they will guide you so yeah I really appreciated that and, and, and Cantheus is an example of a magazine that I I've always, since it started, I've always loved for all the different perspectives that have come from uh, on about feminism. It's not a monolithic thing, right? So, and, and the the um, that uh, feminist perspectives is another example of, of good ex concrete examples of some of the issues and the the way uh, women have been treated and uh, and non-binary people too have been treated and. Uh, everything so yeah it's it's a good it's a good thing that you're doing by having that up there so i will hopefully people will go up there and look now i get other types of stuff you, you've published um obviously poetry both in print and online um essays shorter fiction graphic narrative um so what determines what types of work you will publish like uh, do you do you like is it all call like call for submission or just sometimes you see things and you think it would be good to publish it and um, a bit of both. I, I have my submissions are generally open all the time. Um, even if even if I don't really have a whole lot of space to take things on, I, I like to try and entertain as many options as possible. Um, most of the, it's hard to describe the stuff that I take. Um, it's almost always a gut feeling. Um, right. But in general, I, I skew towards... Uh, stuff that is taking um, formal risks is like a very broad category. For instance, the last, the last short story I published, and I hadn't published a short story for a couple of years, um, but someone in one of my classes prepared this story and I knew immediately like, oh, I, I have to publish that. That's exactly the kind of thing that I want. And it's this, um, this chat book called Old Sea by Ryan Stern. And it's, uh, it's a statistical analysis and um, I guess re revision, rewriting of The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Right. And so he used statistical analysis to define the author signal, uh, Hemingway's author signal using like length of the sentence and word frequency and all this sort of stuff. And then he boils the, the novella down to about 10% of its original length and writes it using the exact stylistic imprint, fingerprint of, of Hemingway. And the story sounds exactly like Hemingway, except even more precise and, and like direct and to the point, but with that like restrained beauty that is so characteristic of Hemingway, it's amazing. So I, I knew just based on the way that he approached writing this story that it was, it was too cool to pass up. I feel that way about pretty much everything that I take. It yeah, comes across, you, have to, yeah. 
Yeah, you have to feel really eager, like you and then you start to think about way in which you can design it, right? Like, um, I'm interested. I was just looking at um, this morning. I was looking at a, a lot of different things as I was kind of reading over my. I have a. a I don't have as a lot of uh, stuff by the blasted tree. Actually, I was surprised. I thought maybe I had more than I had, but no, I I have I have a significant number, but. Uh, not as much as I should, so that shows me something. <laughs> I have to start getting more. But um, I was looking at this publication, Leguminose Delusion Athletics by uh, AM and NRF. First of all, it's quite beautiful. It's got this beautiful uh, slip cover, removable slip cover. That's this is gorgeous, colorful art, and then it's bound. And then um, there's this, there's these fantastic illustrations, and the work itself is really, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And I haven't read the whole thing, so it's very odd. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it made me think of what you were talking about just now in the sense of it, it's, I don't know, it's engaging with something formal there that maybe I, I don't necessarily know. But anyway, it just, it just, it's a cool little publication. It's a, it's a landscape um, style chapbook, which those are rare, right? Those are rare. Like I, I always think of like a lot of chapbooks are the other way, right? So but these, this is a landscape. Anyway, it's a beautiful thing. So what was the conversation like when you talked about uh, designing this? How did this design come about? Well, this design was um, one of the rare publications that I take where they, they included a paragraph about this is how we envision this project looking. And it was almost exactly as you see it now, but slightly larger. Um, and so I had to find ways to, because it is landscape, you can only get a piece of paper so long if you're gonna yeah. fold it in half. Uh, I'm like, my budget is only for, you know, like I can get large paper, but really big paper is astronomically more expensive. So we had like, we did this negotiating process of like how tight can we get it without um, making it look too cluttered um, and using the kind of resources that, that like I have available, but the idea for the, the full color dust jacket oh, was, was the authors that, and, the, and the artists. And they had like a, like quite a clear idea of how the, the black, the registration of the images should be. And, and we, this, this one, we got like into the nitty gritty of stuff, um, in a way that I, I don't uh, normally with other stuff. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it was, it's, it's, I like to engage with people on, on that level if they want to, I think a lot of like poets and stuff like, oh, I wrote the chat book. I don't want to think about how wide the margins are. You can do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, as someone who makes, well, you, you, you did a lovely job of, uh, my, um, uh, John from the Vispo Bible that was, and it's, a lot of people love that too. It was so tactile, the black, and it was, it was a small little uh, thing, but I'm, I'm getting used to that from you. So much of the work that you've uh, put out is like that. We'll talk about uh, Ben Robinson's book in a little while. We'll get back to that. But uh, yeah, what I, I said this to Joachim as well. Um, um, it's like everything you do is pretty much different. Like every, every print um, uh, publication too. Like, I don't think there's one that is exactly the same as the last, right? I mean, is that, that, is that true? Do you think that's good? <laughs> it's it's and, pretty close to true. There are uh, a few, I'll recycle like, um, formats, you know, like I have a template for long sheets, but I'm always right. tweaking things here or there in order to, to make it fit. I try and choose a different paper at least, um, to give it a, at least that little bit of a different tactile feeling. Um, some things that the only the only 
publication that I can think of that I deliberately did the same thing as a previous publication was with um, Kevin Stebner's The Unfolding. I, I did a duplicate of um, Katie O'Brien's, um, oh shoot, why am I, I'm just choking because I'm trying to, yeah, there's so many things in one sentence here. A peal <laughs> of thunder, a moment of, and uh, yeah, just changed the just changed the cover, but uh, left everything else the same because I was so satisfied with the way that the the chapbook format came out in the first place. I'm like, I have to try this again. Yeah, it works well. <laughs> to try. I also looking at uh, anonymous widow, anonymous wife by Natalie Simpson, which is such a gorgeous little. It's got this. Um, I don't know what is that paper on the front. It's like some kind of not onion skin, but it's thicker anyway. And it's yeah. this uh, um, little uh, brown little cord. And then it's got a couple of little uh, rivets, like bolts. That, uh, what are they? Those little holes for, um, I don't know. Go I can't describe things like that. But anyway, and it was really, it's a really beautiful, and it's, I really like this little book. I actually, I, I somehow I, I had, I ended up with two and I sent it to a, a, a friend and she really loved it in Ireland. So that was, uh, that was nice. It's, I mean, like, again, how did this one, it seems to go with the style of it because it's, it's, I mean, the writing is this Gothic uh, calligraphy and then it does have that old world feel to it. Right. It goes with what she's doing within the book about, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon England. And so uh, did you work on that? Was this was your idea or did she have some ideas about design as well for that? This one is much more characteristic of, of the way that I tend to um, approach these things, which is I, she sent me the, the poem and I sent her the chat book when it was done. Right. Um, and in, I guess I want to, preface that or, or follow that up by saying um, that can seem like I'm taking over a project, but I also try to treat it like I wanted, I, I want it to be like a surprise gift in a way where they open their box of chat books and are like, oh my God, I can't believe he went out of his way to do it this way, you know, or I never imagined that it could come out with, you know, like looking like this. And, and so I, like I like that experience myself, and so I that's what I try and do for other people. So this this chat book, um, uh, Natalie Simpson's chat book, has a cover paper that's actually from France. That's like a parchment um, vellum style uh, paper. Uh, it's not actually paper; it's it's animal skin, like a traditional yeah. vellum, but it's made with a paper making technique where they pulp it and put it on a screen like they they would paper. Um, but that's like over a hundred years old I got uh, there's like one remaining batch of this paper and I got a few sheets of it specifically for this project um, because yeah the old world feel I had to try and capture that uh, as best I could there should be like a um there's this um I I can't remember what it used to be this this uh show that took place on the CBC where they had these little moments with in history or whatever. I can't remember what it was called, but they should have that for like um, design moment of the day on this, on the, on the small machine talks, we should have a little, we should play or, or, or the hinterland or whatever that was, you know, like we should have music playing and the person should talk about that. The, the, the very, get into the very nerdy discussions of the, you know, the materials of the work. Cause I have it in every, ever since I, I started to do these episodes specifically with uh, small presses, every episode I'm sure contains this moment with Joachim, it was talking about um, 
this one uh, this one work that had um, these uh, machine screws that he had to get from the from the uh, the original the place that made them. And so like, this is sort of we have these moments where we talk in that way. So it's, this is one thing I found that we all have in common as uh, small press people, even though Angel House Press isn't doing uh, print publications uh, these days. But um, we love all of that, everything to do with the rare paper, strange little ways of binding things, you know, like it's all part of the fun for us. So, uh, yeah, that, that's really cool. And, I totally you, agree. <laughs> are you having trouble getting paper and stuff with the, with the, all of the shortages of paper and, and costs and supply chain? A little bit, yeah. It's been, it's been getting a little bit more difficult. There was a stage where I um, moved like away from art papers and stuff more towards what I could get at like big box stores, but not mm -hmm. even like staples and walmart their paper sections are looking pretty bare too mm -hmm. so i've honestly this pushes me back in the other direction where i have to get creative like what do i already have or what yeah. can i get at the at the the mall over here that you wouldn't expect like the old c chat book is printed on blue lined grid paper which is like you can get a pack of that from from shoppers drug mart for super cheap but it works for the project because it's about statistical analysis and and to my mind, it's like, that's like an Excel spreadsheet. So I'm going to print yeah. it on this little grid of Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> Would you, if you ever, I don't know uh, if you've seen um, anything that J.W. Curry makes uh, here yes. uh, from Ottawa. J.W. Curry uses a lot of um, old junk mail, for instance, as, as covers for things or even as, as insides and envelopes like blank envelopes with the windows still in like industrial sabotage is one of the things that he makes and yeah he'll use a file folders or just anything you can possibly imagine he will reuse which is very interesting the, the reusing old paper and stuff like that so uh, and i have some friends who actually make paper as well grant wilkins makes uh, makes paper uh, so yeah there's there's possibilities there in uh, in in sort of um what to do in terms of maybe being really creative as far as paper use almost mm -hmm. makes me like publishing chapbooks again but no it's too much i can't do it <laughs> so, <laughs> i'll let you i'll let all of you do it um in June 2020, Periodicity Journal, or Periodicities, published an article from you entitled Where We Stand. I found it to be a refreshing and honest piece, especially by a white male publisher and editor. Can you talk about it a bit and what made you decide to write it and also publish it? Um, sure. I think I think this came about because um, Rob McLennan had solicited a piece for, for Periodicities. This had... Uh, as he does. <laughs> as, as he does. does. Um, <laughs> And this came at a time uh, relatively early into the pandemic and it's feeling relatively adrift and, and creatively. I think the first word of that, of that article is paralyzed. Yeah. That's very much how I was feeling at the time uh, with Blasted Tree stuff, with my own poetry, like reading, everything just felt um, on hold until normalcy would return and then I could pick up all these things again. Hmm. And uh, when Rob asked me to write something, uh, I'm like, I can't, I can't really write anything until I get past this feeling. And so that feeling is really about how do I, how do I use the blasted tree to, to speak to 
um, this, the moment that we're living through, those situations we find ourselves in, whether that be you know, the pandemic or racial tension, the residential schools, the, like everything that's going on is, is um, it, was, it was feeling so big. And I'm, I'm over here doing like silly little, yeah. like little visual leaflets. And I'm like, yay, this one's pink. Like, isn't it adorable, right? Like it feels so disconnected to the, the larger uh, conversation that people were having. Um, so yeah, this, this where we stand was a way of processing my relationship and my role to, to uh, the, the issues and where the blasted tree fits. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I found it to be quite refreshing. Yeah, that was a, it's funny, in June of 2020, we were early on in the pandemic and we had no idea what was coming. Like, I mean, we really, we thought it would be a couple of months and, and, uh, and when you think about um, art and all the content that people like, all of the all of the all of the reading and all of the listening to music and all of the um, watching uh, stuff and and taking all this in that people have been doing to help them get through this time, it shows it's not silly little stuff that, that's going on there. With it. it's very important, even and even if it's a little different from maybe a, a Netflix show. I think there's a lot of substance and, and, and help in, in just having that, having that be here and all of, and think about Ukraine and, and all they're going through and some of the ways in which um, music or other things have helped them even as, as much as they're, they're struggling so badly now. But uh, yeah, so I think we, um, I've had those moments too, where I've sort of um, questioned these things that I'm doing as I'm, as I'm taking a, a, a paintbrush and, painting purple uh, purple um, acrylic paint over uh, little words on a page, you know, uh, on cardstock. Well, this feels ridiculous, you know, but no, it, it's, 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 I think it's necessary. And also, even for you as, as a creator, it helps you to get through it. You have to make sense of everything too in your way, right? So uh, mm -hmm. I think it's necessary. But the, especially the thing that I was very interested in is, is sort of the discussion about, um, um, the type of work that you tend to had tended to receive and, and something I, I go into a lot with people is I keep hearing this from uh, a lot of, um, uh, well, I have heard it a few times, uh, even recently from male publishers, I publish what I like to read. And my issue with that is that you can sort of end up in a, you have to be careful, well, at least I have to be careful with that. I don't always know what else is out there. And what I like to read tends to be, um, already directed at me by all sorts of means like by the by can lit you know like sending me off in these directions and and you know or or um or just you know algorithms on facebook or whatever what you you might like to read other stuff too if you were more aware of what else was out there but how does that stuff get to you and that's why i believe in active solicitation like active and not just solicitation but also really um engaging with different communities like um finding out more about um, BIPOC writers, deaf and disabled writers, more women writers, more queer writers, more, you know, all of that. So, and I think you can't do that with, I, I write, I, I publish what I like to read. I think that's a very narrow point of view and it's, I, I don't. So this to me was very refreshing because you were saying you were getting, and as I was, and as I, 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 I do less, but 
getting a lot of work by the kind of people that you were already interested in already reading. So a lot of a lot of men, a lot of white men, and they're doing interesting work. No one denies it. I, I, there's a lot of going on, but there's also a lot of other stuff going on. And I thought that was a very, I don't know, it was very frank of you to say that. And, uh, and when every time I say things like that, as soon as I say it, I get at least three uh, uh, little scoldy messages or emails from men. So, you know, <laughs> did you get any reaction from that? Did anyone? Uh, uh, I'm, you know what? I don't actually recall getting any um, negative response to that. Uh, or positive. From- well, I, I heard a couple of people mention it that that it was, you know, the the right approach to take, and I absolutely stand stand by it. Um, yeah, I believe quality writing comes from all over, uh, yeah. from every walk of life. And as much as I publish stuff that I like, generally what I like is unfamiliar or unsettles me, challenges what yeah. um, I already accept to be um, poetry or the norm, like. Oftentimes, it's the the stuff that leaves me scratching my head or kind of speechless. Um, that that um, yeah, I end up publishing. That I have to like sit with it and process it. Like maybe this wasn't this wasn't written for me, but it certainly speaks to me. That's and uh, yeah, that, that, that's the kind of thing. And on the other side, as like um, I bet I've been the managing editor for Filling Station Magazine, which right. is. Um, I'd say like a bit of a larger venue than the, the blasted tree gets thousands of submissions. Just in general, I think men are more comfortable with the submission process um, or perhaps more tolerant to, to like the, I don't even know the, that's not the right approach. Yeah. They're just like more willing to, to send stuff out there. And if it's rejected, it's whatever. Um, well, I, I think there's a lot of things going on there. I don't necessarily think that it's, that men are more willing, uh, that women are less willing. But I think mm. that when you look at a masthead, for instance, and you see that mm. when you look at a, a publisher, this is something I, I don't want to rant on for too long because I could rant on it forever. But when you look at a publisher and you see that they've published mostly men, and I don't feel like fucking submitting anything to that. I'm sorry. I just don't give a rat's ass to do that. Mm. And also when you're not given payment and for a lot of women, a lot of other groups, they can't afford to just give their work for free. That a lot of times, especially, well, and especially during the pandemic now, um, you've got uh, women, especially being forced to stay home and take care of the kids because they can't, they, you know, they can't, the kids are not in school anymore. So there's a lot, there's time, there's a whole bunch of factors. And then there's also just the, just the attitude, which I hope is changing, but I mean, you still hear a lot of subjects to be, you know, um, just treated in, in very dismissive ways. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things and, and uh, as to why. And I, I, for a while I was doing, I'm still doing it, this close reading service for women and uh, gender non-conforming poets who haven't had books or chapbooks published. And yeah, the big thing I have to, I, I tend to do is I try to help make them feel more confident about their writing. And, and the stuff is great stuff, but you know, it's being rejected time and time again in some cases, or, or maybe they've never sent it out because they just don't see a place for their work. So what you've done with The Blasted Tree is you've made a very welcome space. You don't look at that, you don't look at that, that uh, collection of work that's, that you've got available and say, oh, it's all a bunch of white dudes, I'm not interested, you know? Or, and the other thing too is there's such a reverence for old dead white guys that I am like, I get, I mean, they can be great in their time, but they're not the only ones. Like 
I mean, I love BP Nickel. I love BP Nickel's work, but it's time to talk about right. other people. And and this is yeah. the sort of rant that I, sorry, soapbox that I, I really- No, yeah. it's, it's, it's totally appropriate. I mean, do a Google image search of BP Nickel. Like just type his name in and you'll get hundreds of poems. Yeah. He's out there, yeah, like dead or not. True. He's taken up more space than people who are alive and working now mm-hmm. and who deserve to have, have that platform. No one's denying the work is fantastic and has influenced me. And, and also he did a lot of good and published people like Judith Coppathorn and all that stuff. But I'm just saying, mm-hmm. let's start there, but move. Like I, that's why I like the BP Nicole Chapbook Award actually, because it, it they, they, they use, they still honor uh, great work, but, and great uh, creator of stuff, but at the same time, then they move to the f- future and then they, they support people currently making work. And so I think that's a good way of dealing with that. Whereas, you know, other ways I'm not that interested in yet another BP Nickel book or probably let's publish other people now. Let's have a film about other people now. Let's move on. <laughs> One of the things you say um, in, uh, which I'd like to talk about is you, in the art, in the essay is the best work I get to consider for publication is by people writing from intersections other than my own. Uh, and then I have a dot, dot, dot. Take, for example, Coup by Kate Siclosi, or um, uh, I can't do the Roman numerals now. Anyway, Sonia Labe's uh, work, both feminist interventions in the literature of colonial patriarchy. Patriarchy. I learned a great deal about the ethics of publishing while handling these projects, especially concerning the appropriate relationship between someone else's creative labor and my support of it. I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk about what you learned there? Sure. Well, with um, with Sonnet Lobe's um, uh, publication, we did uh, one of one of her yeah. uh, overwritings of Shakespeare. Fantastic. It was published um, in in conjunction with the Nanaimo Art Gallery, and so they put up the money, and and it was Sonnet's job to find a, a publisher willing to do the design design work. And so for it, it didn't really belong to me from the first. I realized that my role in bringing this um, part out was to sort of facilitate um, Sonnet's vision. And at first I came at this, uh, you know, really trying to foreground my own aesthetic um, agenda, let's, let's say, and the kind of imagery that I was familiar with working, working with. And we went back and forth. And we, it was sort of this negotiation process. We sent it to, to the Nanaimo Art Gallery and they were like, no, start from square one, essentially. They like eliminate all these elements and they were all the elements that like I was personally invested in. <laughs> so we ended up, um, we ended up like really returning to the work and what the work was trying to convey. And so we ended up with this really um, simple geometric shape for the outline of the text. Uh, the, the content of the poem is about ceramics and her, her father's uh, ceramics practice. And so we ended up with something that just faintly resembles like the shape of a, of, of a posh or something. Um, what I learned from that, that interaction is, yeah, it's, it really isn't about me, that I have, a, that yeah. I have skills <laughs> that I can use in ways that I didn't, I didn't, haven't ever thought of before. And that I need other people to sort of unlock those doors so that I can, that I can start working in that way. Now with, with uh, Kate Siclosi's coup. Which I love, the, by the way. Oh I God, love. I love this project. Yeah, this is one of the ones where it's like, you look at it, it's like she, she submitted this and I'm like, oh, instant yes, yeah. instant yes. Um, 
but it's a it's a feminist intervention in like colonial narratives and using found text and and uh, it was sort of my introduction to the idea of um, textile as um, as a feminist praxis and uh, her use of like thread and and fragility using like leaves and and whatnot it really spoke to me as like foregrounding uh, craft and foregrounding um, labor that is like traditionally viewed as, as female labor. So I wanted to do something that used the same materials, used her, her techniques. So I used red thread and I, yeah. I stitched it and I did this like collage, uh, collaged glued together cover using Boy. some of the materials that she had used. And again, it was really about trying to do um, as much honor to her work as possible. Like if, if Kate were to sit down and to hand make 50 of her own chat books, <laughs> what would it come out looking like? Um, I did all that without consulting her at all. She put this whole project in my hands and that's what I gave her back. But I used, wow. again, like what I learned from working with Sonnet, I brought it into working with Kate and, and I ended up really proud of that one. Well, I love that one too. I, I can't even recall where I, whether I, I think I had it before, um, I saw you at the fair because I, I I may have even ordered it or something. I just I I loved it the most. I mean, it's one of the thing one of the chapbooks that I really treasure and uh, an early kind of insight into into her work for me. Maybe not, yeah. I've I've known her work for a while, but that particular style, especially with the with the textile and who knows, it might have been an early seed of Judith as well because uh, mm. started to make me think about visual poetry in different ways as well. So. Uh, one of the people who did so. So that's an important chapbook for me as well. Coup de grace. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, now let's talk about um, the, uh, the, this book. Um, after several years of publishing chapbooks, broadsides and other small publications, especially very small publications, suddenly from the outsider's point of view, there's Ben Robinson's Without Form, which is like the Moby Dick of, uh, of uh, you know, it's, it's a it's a big brick. It's it's a, it's a, what uh, how did that come about? Um, OK, well, uh, <laughs> Ben sent in Without Form yeah. as like. The, I think he, he, he pitched the project just with the book of Genesis. It's um, an erasure of the entire Bible, leaving only the, the verse notation. Um, yeah. So the project is the length of the Bible. And uh, when he first sent this in, I'm like, oh, I love this project. Again, gut reaction. I just, I, I love this. I can't say no to it, but I'm I've never super jealous, you realize it. Super jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, I had to take it on. We, we talked it over and I'm like, I can't do a book. So we published it as chat books first yeah. where each of the, the um, books of the Bible was split up into its own chat book. Some yeah. were one page long, some are like 50 pages long. I have Ezekiel and it's beautifully done too. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm, I've, again, I'm quite happy with the way that came out, but there's just this sort of thorn in my side afterwards that I'm like, ah, I didn't, I didn't do justice to that project. Like that project is meant to land on your desk <laughs> with the weight and authority of, of the entire Bible. So after sort of humming and hawing about it, I approached Ben and I'm like, can we do, can we do a limited run of like maybe six copies of, 
like beautiful hardcovers, the most expensive we can afford. <laughs> and we'll just, we'll just make one for you, one for me and a couple to sell to like cover the costs and that'll be it. And Kirby catches wind of this. Uh, Kirby at Knife Fork Book uh, catches wind of this project and is like, oh, darling, that needs to be more than six copies. We have to do 36 copies or something like that. And so we teamed up with Kirby to, to finance this project and to help with the, the cross promotion and everything. We ended up selling through the 36 um, during the pre-sale. And so we expanded the run to 50 copies. I think I have three copies left or something wow, like that. Amazing. So if people are interested, I still have a couple. Three copies. But, uh, it became such a group effort. It was, uh, yeah, it was one of the honors of my publishing career is, is actually pulling the trigger on, on doing that book. It must have been. I mean, it's it's such a cool thing. I mean, I've been trying to with the with the Vispo Bible. I can't like everyone's talked about how it'd be nice to have it, but I don't even know. First of all, if I'm ever going to complete it, but second of all, everyone's talking about how it'd be nice to have it all in one publication. And I thought, yeah, I can't even see it. How could it be? And you know, and then there's this. So a little different, but still still relevant and and, and similar, but also very uniform in style in some ways so yeah no it's great i've been thinking about pressing flowers in it or something because it's like this massive thing but uh yeah i mean it's really fun to go through too as an object and to kind of see all that all of the numbers weaving around like it's a bit of a flip book as well and it's yeah it's very different it's like I, i'm looking at it on, on the table and beside you know the all these little little things and then this without form, <laughs> you know, it's like, but no, it, was it, was it different for you to design in a book length way like that? Was that a different experience for you from doing smaller work and like chapel? Uh, in, in many ways it was, yes. Um, in the sense that I'd never, like I'd done some paperback books in there, like a couple of copies or I'd done some book design um, as a freelancer. So I had experience with, um, like typesetting a book of, of, you know, a couple hundred pages, I guess, and making sure that it was print, like print ready. You could send it to the bookmaker and they could make it happen. But nothing that's like almost 800 pages or in hardcover <laughs> or dust jacketed or like there's so many firsts in this, in this project. Um, and it's, it was so expensive per unit that we didn't, we didn't test a, we didn't, do a test print or a prototype. I just, I just <laughs> sent it in, sent in the order for 50 copies and just well, hoped and prayed that it came out, came out right. <laughs> well, praying is always good to do when you're involved with the Bible because you never know uh, when the devil will come out and, you know, yeah. start to play with it. But that's fun too. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, but also, I mean, it, it's really nice to see something like that come out because um, you know, there are a few of us working with the Bible and to see uh, what it can do and how creatively it can be. I mean, I, I kudos to Ben for doing it too. It's a really interesting way of engaging with the Bible. I mean, I like, I'm always looking at different um, artists and writers who work with the Bible and or, or religious texts and to see how they interact with them. I've got a list of people that uh, have done so and do so. So uh, yeah, it's, it was, this was an interesting thing to start seeing come out and when it came out in the book, I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. <laughs> but, <laughs> I appreciate yeah. your support of it. I got to say, I'm a big admirer of uh, your Vispo Bible Thank as well. You. 
I love seeing uh, you publish. I love seeing it progress every time. It's it's always like you said. Yours is it's it likes it, it goes through an evolution each time. It seems it's uh, quite a fascinating project to watch. I I, I really do let the um, the publishers determine the form more than like what when Sasha, for instance, for Simulacrum Press did um, did uh, the Book of Ruth and chose this gold blingy shiny paper in the big binderings. I mean, it was perfect for that. And it, but I would never, or, or when Michael Castiles did a small for, for Esther, you know, and I think he might've been the first one to publish, uh, might've been the first one to publish from Puzzles of Sky Press. I mean, everyone and yours with with the with a cool black paper and the and the small little gold. You know, that was a beautiful little. I mean, everyone's had a different thing. And Joachim of, of Tim Glass is doing Revelation, and then everyone's done it. And really, it's all been there. To say, I haven't really had any kind of as long as there are margins there, and and it doesn't look too tiny on the page, which drives me bats with visual poetry. Um, but anyway, so like tiny little pieces that that wasn't what the visual poet intended, but because the, the designer, the, the, the publisher doesn't know how to work with imagery or, or the, the visual poet doesn't know how to work with the imagery, both of these happen, pollution um, mm -hmm. versus uh, you know, physical dimension and how that works together or doesn't. But just, you know, like other than that, I'm pretty pretty open to whatever method someone's gonna choose, a publisher's gonna choose. So every time I have a new, uh, uh, well, I have lots, of, I have lots of lots of unpublished books from because I've got 350 pages now, right? So oh, wow. I keep doing. I'll do right now. I'm doing maybe one book a year or so and just depends on how many I did one Corinthians already I'm doing two Corinthians uh, this year as well so I'm doing both Corinthians this year but uh, like a, basically I take a day every week and I, I'll do maybe a couple of pieces and that will like, be exhausting now so I say okay that's enough for now but I'm not really pushing it so yeah I, I keep uh, I keep just doing a little bit here and uh, hopefully uh, and I never know exactly how to um where to send these things, especially the ones that have color, um, color in them, because that's harder in Canada and, and North America to publish. So in, apparently in, in Europe, it's easier to get, uh, or was, I don't know, things are changing with the, with all of the supply chain issues, but it has been easier to get color work done. So, but uh, yeah, I never know what's going to happen to it. And some of it's online as well. So like just, I, sometimes I just share it. Um, like I'm thinking of doing a whole one just on my, I have a visual poetry blog. So I'm thinking of just one book. Maybe I'll just do the whole thing every day. I'll just put the whole thing out on the, you know, if I can get a, a book that's 30 chapters, then I'll, I'll 30, 31 chapters. I'll do something like that. And it depends on how long, how many chapters there are in a book in some ways. Right. So like for a chapbook, it has to be something that fits in a chapbook size. So, so like some of the bigger books are don't like, like uh, some of the early old Testament stuff, for instance, are too long for a chapbook unless you put more than one on a page. So these are the kind of things that go into thinking about it, but yeah, that side of things, other than just sitting in front of Photoshop and going, what have you changed now? What complicated thing have you done that I can't figure out? Do you use uh, InDesign or something for your, uh, for um, yes. Yeah, I use InDesign and I use Photoshop. Yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah, I, 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 been, I, I, Charles is good at stuff like that. So he's taught me a few things along the way. I'm not that great at InDesign though. Um, so uh, can you give us some teasers about forthcoming publications and content? Would you be willing to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right on my desk right now, I'm working on a chapbook called Site Orientation by Samantha Jones. It's this really cool 
um, visual poetry project that uses like warning labels from like the materials safety data sheet, oh, but fuck. has sort of reimagined them to, to, to be warnings for like OCD triggers. And uh, each poem is like a situation like um, it's, you know, the rating of the patio door has been left open and there's some warning signs and, and then a poem to go along with it. And uh, I think the, the series is like 10 or 12 poems long and they're all, they're all very funny, little cheeky, but very thoughtful. So that's coming out soon. Um, we're trying to bind it. The inspiration for this is like a clipboard that you would see hanging on the wall at like a, a lab or a factory. So you'd be aware of all the dangerous chemicals and stuff. Um, I have a, let's see, another chapbook by Wayman Chan in the works. We're just in the editing process right now where he's brushing up a long poem that's sort of a dialogue between, uh, between rainbow and between uh, world snake. So it's the, these sort of divine images, archetypes having this uh, conversation about existence and being. It's quite wow. wonderful. And then um, uh, always a bunch of little small press stuff in the works. I have a, a long sheet that's like my first attempt at a, a double long sheet where I'm like binding long sheets together to make to make a little booklet, I guess, or a tall sort of booklet. Um, that'll be by Carrie uh, uh, Rawlinson. Uh, it's a series called Maps, Omens, and Agar which is uh, an anagram of poems and anagrams. And so it comes with like uh, one poem and then her anagram version of it. Uh, we actually put a couple of them in there. So I'm excited about that too. Those are, those are my um, immediate publications for like end of April, early May. Um, I got chapbooks lined up all summer. Uh, I think this may be a good opportunity to say that I run a subscription service. Yes. So if, if any of your listeners are interested in receiving blasted tree materials in their mailbox a couple times a year. I do these uh, 12 month print, print subscriptions where everything that I make besides like a full length book uh, that goes in a folder for you. And then twice a year, uh, I send it, I send it your way. And uh, it's a good way to like not miss out on any of these wonderful chat books that uh, there, there's only a limited amount of, right? That's right. Yeah, I remember. I remember when uh, Helen Robertson's Body of Stone came out, and I was subscribing. I said, "When do I get it?" When because I, I kept hearing that it was it was run, it ran out, and I was like, "When do I get mine?" Because I really want it. <laughs> so that was good. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic uh, work too. Is there anything else that you'd like to add at this point? Oh my! I mean, I feel like I could talk to you forever about this stuff. <laughs> it's one of the nice things about when I met you at, at Beat the Presses, we had an opportunity while well, we had the market and then we had an opportunity to sit down over drinks and have a, have a nice chat. And, and I, don't, I don't have anything specific besides that I feel, I feel very honored uh, to, to be on the podcast, especially after I, I publicly disparaged podcasts. I felt a, oh, a I forgot about that. to even accept your invitation. <laughs> But uh, I'm so glad that the opportunity is still on the table. <laughs> yeah, I, I say lots of things on Twitter that I later on realize, what the fuck was I saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, I, I, I love podcasts, but um, obviously doing one, but um, for, for like six years now, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, not everybody, it doesn't, it's not a form that works for everybody, but for me, it, I like it better than say watching YouTube videos because I can listen to a podcast while I'm walking along or doing dishes or whatever other things I'm doing rather than I have, I don't have to focus on it so specifically, but, to, and there's some good ones. This one's of course an excellent podcast. So it's worth it. <laughs> there you go. Now uh, enough praising the small machine talks. I'd like to uh, do, I, I always have a little, I often have a little note of praise about, um, um, the thing, the, the people or the um, publishers that I um, talk to. So here's my little thing for um, The Blasted Tree. The Blasted Tree provides a welcome space for creators and a varied collection of work, whether it be in print or digital, graphic narrative, video poem, or massive tome. Oh, a rhyme. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Fowler <laughs> is aware of his role and thoughtful about the issues of gatekeeping. With queer, trans, neurodiverse, non-binary, and BIPOC contributors, it's clear that the press is working on creating a diverse and inclusive space. Whether it's B. Keeler's wonderful graphic narrative on anger, which I loved, amend, to the tactical, tactile, tactical, tactile beauty of Kate Seclosi's coup, to the strong and vulnerable poetry of Helen Robertson in Body of Stone, the care exhibited in 100, 100 Petals for Kate Seclosi, in which Kyle takes petals from a clematis as impetus to write of the pandemic and the rehabilitative act of love, the blasted tree offers so much good. The first words that come to my mind when I think of the blasted tree are thoughtfulness, care, love, and one of my favorite things, whimsy. That's that's my little crazy paragraph for thee. <laughs> there you go. Put that on my tombstone. Those are the nicest yeah. words I've ever heard. Uh, oh, wow. I, I really appreciate it. It means it a lot. better be a long tombstone. <laughs> this is yeah, kind of wordy. Tall. <laughs> that's true, right? That this is this is worthy of 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 your grave. Okay, well, if I'm contacted or you know, I mean, say possible anyway. <laughs> so, you know, that's uh, on on that note. On that. note, little modeling note we will we will end the show and i thank you to kyle for being on the show to charles over for processing to jennifer peterson for the intro and outro assistance and to all of you for listening and sharing episodes of the small machine talks stay tuned for future episodes with broken sleep books of the uk kfb esther glock press above ground press Berbois of ireland ethel zine of the states and hem press in uh, england in the rest of the year Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.